Well, good morning, church. Thank you for inviting me into your home and again this Sunday. And this Sunday, I'm inviting you into my home, which will be where we will be broadcasting our services for the time being. You know, many people have asked me over the last uh, many days how I'm doing in this situation. And I've said to them, you know, my typical answer has been, you know, good, all things considered. But the deeper answer is, I think the truer answer is, I really don't know. For the last, you know, 20, almost 20 years, I have, the answer to that question has been tied up in what I do for a living, which is pastoring a church. And, you know, for the last uh, 10 days or so, I'm pastoring a church um, whose doors are closed. And, uh, and beyond that, I can't say with any confidence when those doors will be open and, and what the church is gonna be like, what the community's gonna be like when it does. But even more important than that, I've been asking myself the question, not only what does it mean to be a pastor, um, whose church doors are closed, but what does it mean to be a Christian in the world that we are living in today? And I know a lot of you, a lot of us, are asking that question, and I think the passage that we're looking at this morning may give us some help. We started a series last Sunday called Generous, and we're gonna pick up right where we left off last week in Luke's Gospel. If you have a copy of the Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 18 verses 18 through 30, which I'm gonna read in our second installment in a message titled, Generous Living. Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30, follow along as I read. A certain ruler asked him, that is Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and your mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When he heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said to him, we have left all to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. You know, the rich young ruler is a story, very famous story that's in three of the four gospels. And I think it's here because of what it says to us, to people of all ages, all time, about what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And I think maybe especially in the time and day that we live in. And you know, this guy, if he was in our church today, though, I would say this, the rich young ruler. I'm not sure we would be um, you know, doing his video, uh, a testimony on video. His, 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 his testimony, his story is not um, in some ways that spectacular if he was a member of a church like ours today. In other words, he's not a religious 
you know, self-righteous Pharisee who had a dramatic conversion like the Apostle Paul did. Nor is he a flagrant sinner like, you know, the prostitute or the tax collectors that Jesus often loved and rescued. This is a guy who, you know, is a college graduate, who's someone who's a man of character, it looks like from the, from the verses that we read in this pa passage. He was someone who had some early success in his life, but did not let that success go to his head. He's smart enough to know that there's a limit to material success. There must be something more. There must be life beyond simple material success. And he's also smart enough to know it, that Jesus is probably the right person to ask this question. Now, so he asked this question, you know, grid master, he comes to, to Jesus and says, what must I do, right? Uh, to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, well, let's start with the commandments, the moral law of God. And he gives him this great list. And at least when we get to verse 21, it says, you know, all these I've kept uh, from my youth, right? So far, so good. And Jesus is sort of listening to him, walking down this road with him. But then Jesus, you know, um, looks into his heart, right? which I think there's a message here for all of us, right? And he wants to look into his heart and Jesus puts his finger on the one thing, right, that seems to be keeping him from getting what he wants, this eternal life that he's asking Jesus for, which is his wealth, right? His wealth, money and what money can buy, apparently is keeping him from what it is that he most wants. So Jesus says, listen, so far so good, but here's my advice to you. Sell everything that you have, right? And give it to the poor. And then, Jesus says, come and follow me. The implication is this, that only until you do that, right? right? Uh, you can't follow me until you do sell everything and follow me. Now, if you're, if you're like most people reading this passage, you might say, what is Jesus talking about, right? If you read the Gospels carefully, this is, the, is this a new Gospel? Is Jesus all of a sudden, you know, um, contradicting himself and saying, listen, what it means to be a Christian is you need to empty your bank account, whatever it is, and you need to give it to the poor and then you can be a Christian. Well, that's not what Jesus says to everyone. It's what Jesus says to this man because in his case, his wealth, you might say money and what money can buy, had become his functional God, right? It had become his functional God. So what Jesus is saying to you and me as we listen to this passage today, I think to all of us, is generous living, right? That's our subject in this series, begins with the death of our gods, right? Generous living begins with the death of our gods. Listen carefully to this statement. This is what I think Jesus is saying. Um, the call to follow Jesus is not just trusting him for your salvation. It also demands you stop trusting other things for your security and your self-worth, right? It's not just a ticket to heaven. Yes, I wanna trust Jesus for my salvation. But when I embrace him, I need to stop trusting other things for my security, holding on to other things for my self-worth because it's keeping me from the true experience, the true eternal life that God offers us, that he offers me. 
let me see this as, you know, your, your, your pastor. Uh, I, I would never say to you, uh, you know, on this, you know, uh, March the 22nd, you know, in the middle of the situation that we are living in 2020, that God sent the coronavirus um, to bring the world to, his knee, to, to, to its knees, right? I would never say that. I would never be so presumptuous to think that I could, um, you know, divine the mind of God or tell you why he does what he does. But I would say this. I, I can say pretty confidently that God is using the coronavirus in the world to, um, in a manner of speaking, bring the world to its knees, bring the world to ask some questions about what's important in life and what it is that we are truly functioning and why we are living and how we are living our lives. I do believe that. I heard a pastor that I have great respect for um, just a couple days ago, I think it was on Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, and he was speaking uh, to his congregation through, through, the, through the, uh, the internet like I'm doing here this morning, like most pastors are doing. He has a very large church and a very large following, speaking to thousands of people, I'm sure. And he said this, he said, a lot of people have second-guessed and criticized the, our national leaders, um, our president, etc., cetera, um, for a very slow response to the coronavirus. And he said, you know, um, because we could have acted quicker, we, we, we dragged our feet, we, um, we were causing harm, we should have taken action sooner. But he said, the truth is, it's not just our national leaders. Many people felt this way. A lot of us looked, and he said, I, and he basically made a confession in front of thousands of people. He said, I'm one of them. And I looked months ago and said, you know, this is in a manner of speaking. It's kind of a, you know, a developing country. There's these big cities, there's too many people in them. They don't, they don't have the smartest ways to eat food and to sell food. And, and the, way they've, the way this thing has come about, that would never happen here, right? He said, that's how I felt. That's how a lot of people felt. He said, until um, what happened happened and I realized, you know, um, I was humbled by my own pride. And I think, I think that's happened to me. I think it's happened to a lot of people in our country. Generous living begins with the death of your gods. Let me say this about idolatry. When most people hear the word idol, if you heard that word today, outside of American idol or you know, something like that, but when we think about the idol in the sense of a religious thing, we, we typically think of primitive religions where people, you know, maybe you've seen this on TV or in a magazine where they, they bow down to an actual literal statue. Now, there, and there actually are places, traditional cultures, perhaps not in, the, in Western uh, democracies or in America or in, in our country so much, but in places, in traditional cultures, people still do that. But I would say to you that that is really for a, more of a benign kind of um, form of idolatry, right? It's like having a, I don't know, a, a, a manger scene on your, on your mantle or something. The much more serious kind of idolatry which is alive and well, is the, is the idols of the heart, okay? There's a famous passage in, in the prophet of Ezekiel when the, the elders of Israel, right? Things are not going, they're, they're having their own form of the coronavirus in the book of Ezekiel. And the leaders come to the prophet Ezekiel, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse uh, one, says this. Some of the elders of Israel, they came to me, this is the prophet Ezekiel, and they sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me. 
right? God had something he wanted to say. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? See, just like the rich young ruler, uh, as they sit before God, or excuse me, as they sit before this prophet, maybe in the right clothes at the right time, at the right place, you know, having crossed their T's and dotted their I's, God says, listen, I want you to let them know something, son of man. Tell them I can see in their hearts, right? And I can see that they have idols and there are things in their lives, right? What is wealth? It's, it's money and what money can buy. It means many things. There are things in their hearts that they are really trusting for their security. They're, they're really trusting for their self-worth things that are more important than God, that are their functional gods. And let me say something, son of man, I don't want, I'm not gonna listen to what they have to say because they're not interested in hearing what I have to say. That's what I think uh, is happening here to this man. You know, it's interesting in the gospels. If you read the gospels carefully, uh, there's, this is the only passage, Luke chapter, uh, or this story, it's here in Luke chapter 18, but in the, in, in the story of the rich young ruler, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the call of discipleship, and when Jesus actually says to somebody, come and follow me, is refused. He says to um, Andrew and Simon, come follow me, and says they dropped their nets and followed him. He goes a little bit later to James and John, who are, who are in the boats, they're fishing also, and he says, come follow me, and says they left their boats with their father and they came and followed me. A little bit later, he goes to a guy named Matthew, who's a tax collector. He's, at, he's in the market. He has a booth. He says, come follow me. He says, he left his booth and followed me. This is the only time in all of the Gospels uh, where Jesus has a direct call of discipleship and it's refused. Because in this case, this man's wealth was so important, he walks away. Here's the idea. Apparently, he didn't have money as much as money had him. And that money, or his wealth, and what money could buy, had become so important to him, had become so central to his, his life and his identity, his self-worth, his security. When Jesus said, listen, you gotta let it go, he couldn't do that, right? He couldn't walk away. Now, you might say, well, is, is Jesus against money, right? Because if you read the whole Gospels, you don't get this anywhere else. Jesus is not anti-money. Jesus is anti-idolatry. That is, he's against anything that is more important to you or to me than God. He's against anything that you will seek to give you, to give me what only God can give you. That's what he's talking about, right? Generous living begins with the death of your gods. Do you know what those gods are in your life? Do I know what those gods are in my life? What is Jesus really saying to this man, right? You still lack one thing. So far, so good, right? But what's really missing, right? This is what Jesus is saying. He's not saying what you're doing is bad. What you have is bad. Money's not bad. Certainly being a moral man and a man of character, a successful businessman is not bad. But what you're truly missing, okay, what you're missing in your life is a true relationship with God, right? That's what he didn't have. Now, it, there's no reason to doubt 
that this man, think carefully about this, uh, did not live and in, 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 uh, uh, comply with these uh, commandments. In other words, he was, when he says to Jesus in verse 21, 20, uh, 21, listen, all these I've kept from my youth, we have no reason to believe that he wasn't a man of character, that he didn't. If you look, if you pay attention to these verses, Jesus knocks off half of the entire moral law of God. If we look at the Ten Commandments, the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth commandment, they're all here. And this man says, without any uh, taking a breath, all these I've kept from my youth up. And Jesus says, Great, there's no reason to think that he didn't keep those, but what Jesus is saying in the 22nd verse is, well, you did a good job, but there's one that you're, that's, that you're obviously not keeping, right? There's, there's one, the foundational commandment of all the commandment is the first one, and that's the one that you've missed, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus chapter 20, verse three. His devotion to his wealth, money and what money can buy, had become, took the place that was meant for God in his life, right? So what's the big idea? He's saying, listen, your material wealth can become a source for spiritual danger in your life because it can blind you. It can blind me from what my real need is. Now, in, in this passage, there's so much here, but I want you to go back to where it started. This, this, this um, sincere man comes to Jesus and says, listen, good teacher, how do I have eternal life? How can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says something to him that at first seems um, like it, Jesus is being, I don't know, um, purposefully um, you know, uh, hiding something or, or clever. Because he says, why do you call me good? Well, we, you and I would think Jesus is good, but he's trying to force this man to think about what does it mean to be good because that's part of his problem, right? Some of us, our wealth, our success, that we think that makes us a good person, right? He says, well, why do you call me good? There's only one good person, and that is God. And that's one of the big ideas of this passage, right? That, yes, we have moral goodness, right? I might, you might be better than me, and I might think I'm better than her or him, but what Jesus is saying is when it comes to the true understanding of the moral law of God, right? It's not about, you know, external behavior. Jesus looks into his heart. You know, you shall have no other gods before me. When you really look at the law of God from the heart, there's only one good person, and that only one good person is Jesus himself, and only he can do the impossible in your life. That's what he's saying at the end of this passage. When the disciples say, you know, who can be saved? Jesus says, what is impossible, right? The, the things that capture your heart and your imagination, the things that you desperately hold on to for your own security, for your own self-worth, they are so strong. They have such a grip on you and on me. He's saying, listen, they're impossible to, um, be, to, to, to break from those things in your life. He said, but Jesus can do that. He's the only one that can do the impossible in your life or in my life, that is, deliver you from the false gods, you might say, the things that we, that, we, that we desperately hold on to to find our security and our self-worth. So I ask you this question, as Jesus is asking this guy the question, right? Whether you're a Christian or not. Do you have a real 
relationship with God today. In other words, is Jesus Christ truly the center of your life? You shall have no other gods before me. Now in verse 24, after this man, you know, we, it's implied that he could have walks away. Jesus turns and he gives us many sermon to the people that are left, which we know from verse 28 that it's the 12 apostles, at least, there's Peter. And he gives this little sermon, he says, listen, how hard is it for rich people in general, right? For a rich man, woman, to enter the kingdom of God. And then he uses this um, metaphor, right? It's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a, of a needle than a rich man or a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what does he mean by that? And if you're a Bible student, you know, there's all these uh, uh, people find this such an incredibly hard saying that they're trying to help Jesus out with all these strange interpretations, but it's, it's not very mysterious, right? It's simply a metaphor for impossibility. It's what you think it is. It's like saying, you know, when pigs fly, you know, rich people are going to enter the kingdom of God. When, when it's a cold day in hell, you know, kind of a thing, rich people will enter the kingdom of God. It's a metaphor for impossibility. But what's really interesting about this passage is not even that. It's what happens in verse 26. Those who heard asked, right, the disciples, when they hear this, they say, who then can be saved? In other words, they, they, they watch this whole thing take place. They listen to Jesus' little sermon that's about rich people not being able to enter the kingdom of God and they're shocked to their court and say, listen, if that's true, who can be saved? Now you ask yourself, why would they say that? Because we know the disciples, because we have the record in the New Testament, they weren't rich people. Okay, they, they were not people, if, if we can, you know, for a minute, bring our own day into this passage, you might say the rich young ruler was the 1%, okay, and certainly most other people, including the disciples of Jesus, including much of the early church, if you know the New Testament, they, it started out with people that didn't have a lot of money. The disciples, we know what they did for a living, they were fishermen, and they were blue collar people, so to speak, they were not rich, so why would they be so aghast at Jesus speaking when the vast majority of people, it's not a new phenomenon, in Jesus' day were not wealthy people. Who cares? You and I, if we, if we read the newspaper and it says, you know, fat cat, rich guy, or rich uh, uh, lady, you know, uh, ends up in jail, or they're, you know, they're, they're spurned by uh, the things of, uh, the, the virtues of life, or the, you know, we wouldn't think anything of it. We think they deserve it. But see, in this culture, the blessings of God, or let's say material blessings, I should say, were seen as blessings from God. So when, when Jesus says rich people are, it, it's, it's easier for the camel to go through an eye for a needle than for rich people to get to heaven, it, 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 it not, it's not offensive to the disciples' way of life, they're not rich, but it is to their worldview, right? Because to them, to have material success meant God's blessing. Think about this for a minute. Abraham, right? This is their Bible. He was a very wealthy man. Uh, uh, Moses, before he got in trouble, was a very, he was the daughter of the uh, Pharaoh's uh, daughter, right? Son of Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, Job was the wealthiest man in all the world in his day. David was a pretty wealthy man. Solomon was in his day, if we, if we take the Bible at face value, was certainly 
if not the wealthiest, one of the most wealthy men in his day, if not in the whole ancient world, right? So what do you make of that? What do I make of that, right? What is Jesus trying to say? The bystander who answers this question though, whether it's an apostle or not, verse 26, you know, they're asking, this is what they mean, who then can be saved? What they're saying is this, how can anyone, right, anyone be saved when practically speaking, all of us participate to lesser and greater degrees to the love of money and what money can buy, right? It's not just whether or not you have wealth. There's a lot of people for whom wealth is their God and they don't have a lot, right? He's saying, listen, how, Jesus, how can anyone be saved when, the, when most of us, wherever we are on the economic scale, our hearts, our imaginations are captured by money and what money can buy. Let me say this about, the, about us today, coronavirus. The overwhelming majority of us, okay, number one, probably are not gonna get the coronavirus, but if we do, and maybe many more of us will get it, maybe I'll get it, maybe you'll get it, even though as careful as we are, are probably going to um, be just fine. In other words, 80%, some say 90% of all the people that get the coronavirus, their, their symptoms will self-resolve without any treatment whatsoever. The reason we're taking these drastic measures, and I, I'm glad we are, I'm participating, you should, is not for our own health, most of us, it's to protect the most vulnerable uh, people in our community, okay? That's why we're doing this. But I would say this to you, although our health is not keeping most of us up at night, I would suggest to you, people I talk to, your financial future is keeping you up at night because a lot of us are watching our accumulated wealth go straight downhill one day after another, and we're wondering if we're gonna have any money when this is all over, how we're gonna pay for this, that, and the other thing when this is all over. Is our jobs gonna be there when we're done? Are we gonna have the same kind of income? Is our kids gonna have an opportunity to continue doing what they're doing, and on and on, right? And the answer to that question, right, who then can be saved, right? How, what, what are we gonna do in this kind of situation? It's the same answer. Okay, this is what Jesus gives in the, uh, the, uh, the 26th, or 27th verse. It's the same answer that Abraham and Sarah got when their life came to a halt at 90 plus years old, wanting to have a promised child. It's the same answer that the young Virgin Mary got when she was given this great calling in her life. That is, nothing is impossible with God. That's what Jesus wants to say. Nothing is impossible with God. He's the only one that can save you. He's the only one that can heal you. And he's the only one who can deliver you or deliver me from the idols of our hearts, from the small g gods in our life, the things that we have are clinging to, to really find our security and to really find our self-worth. One more thing, let me say in this passage. Those, I don't know who's watching this this morning. Some of you that might be watching, maybe you're not sure you're a Christian. Let me say one thing quickly about this passage. What this passage tells us, one of the reasons it's so famous and it's here in, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is it tells you this. You do not become a Christian by obeying the Ten Commandments, right? Think about this guy. 
You know, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life, right? Jesus says, well, let's start with the Ten Commandments. And this guy, five of the Ten Commandments, this guy has down cold, right? But Jesus says, there's still something missing in your life, right? And he's pointing him to the real um, obedience in the moral law, which is not about how you, what you do with your hands, where you go, right? It's not about these simple external behaviors. They're all about obedience from the heart. And when we understand that all the commandments are about obedience from the heart, right? As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not whether or not you commit adultery, it's whether you think about it. It's not whether or not you murder somebody, it's whether or not you're angry. When we understand the moral law that way, listen, all of us have failed. The, only, the true rich young ruler, there's only one, it's Jesus. He was the rich young ruler, right? The true rich young ruler who left heaven, he became poor that we might become rich. He was born in a humble uh, stable in Bethlehem. He died on a cross uh, to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. And only when you receive that grace and forgiveness are you truly freed, am I truly freed from the grip of our false gods and false securities from money and what money can buy in your life and in my life. That is this, this, this idea of wealth. Why is it the only reason someone said no to the call of Jesus? It's ruined many people's lives and kept a lot of Christians like you and me from the full experience of what it means to follow Jesus. Now this is also a message I should say for Christians because there are still many of us who are would have to say to ourselves, we're, still, we're missing something in our relationship with God. And I would say it's because we, we still have idols that we're hanging on to, still have idols that we're placing our security and self-worth in. And I would say to you this morning, in the midst of this crisis we're in, it's time to let go of them. It's time to give them all to God so that you can serve Him and His purposes with all of your life. David Brooks, the, the um, uh, New York Times columnist, said this in an article, it was Friday's paper, caught my attention, I think it was meant to. The title of the article was called, Screw This Virus, by which he meant, if you read the article, okay, he said, everyone ought to be getting mad at this virus. That is to say, get mad at what it's doing to the world, what it's doing to a lot of people, not just people getting sick, but losing their jobs, you know, from, you know, from all across the economy, right? Screw this virus. Then he said this, while we're at it, Screw certainty. I'm beginning to appreciate the wisdom that cancer patients share. We just can't know. Don't expect life to be predictable or fair. Don't try to tame the situation with some feel-good lie or confident prediction. Embrace the uncertainty of this whole life-or-death deal. There's a weird clarity that comes with that embrace. There is a humility that comes with realizing you're not the glorious plans you made for your life. And when the plans are upset, there's a quieter and better you beneath them. See, that's where this passage ends, right? Peter says to him, this is all over, verse 28, we have left all to follow you, right? This is the one occasion where Peter actually gets it right. Peter says, listen, Jesus, he listens to Jesus, he listens to the challenge he gives this man. There's one thing that you lack. 
See, there's an idol in your heart that's really keeping you from the, a relationship with God, that's keeping you from a real relationship from God, that's keeping you from the joy, the, from the generous living that you want and that I want. And Peter, at the end of the sermon, says, Jesus, we've done that. Now, does that mean Peter left his family or he never fished again or he never played you know, a, a poker again or whatever? No, it doesn't mean that because it, it says... But those things, what Peter did, Jesus mentions it. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents. Jesus is not saying to leave those things, like to leave your spouse, to leave your kids. No, to take them off the center of your life. That no longer your wealth, however you define it, it might be your accumulated wealth, it might be money, but it could be your family, it could be your career. In other words, those, Peter said, listen, we've already transferred our hearts from those things, we've already left those things, and Jesus says, yes, you have. And you, those who've done that, they will receive many times as much. Listen, in this age, you see, it's about this life. The kingdom of God is not a future phenomenon, it's, it's a present tense one. It's the joy, it's peace, it's the fruits of the Spirit. In this age and in uh, the age to come, eternal life, right? With Jesus at the center of your life, we can live generously and, listen carefully, faithfully serve God with your wealth, whatever that is, in this life. So here's what, some closing advice, my last point. What would it look like to live faithfully and serve God with your wealth here in this day in the midst of the coronavirus? Right. What would it look like for you and me, where we sit, right, to not be, have a scarcity mentality, not to hunker down and be self-protective and fearful? What would it look like today to serve God faithfully with your wealth? Three things, quickly, just sort of takeaways for this message. Number one, use your wealth to meet a need for another instead of satisfying a want for yourself, right? Use your wealth to meet a need, could be very small and concrete, for someone else instead of satisfying a want for yourself. This could be as small as the price of a dinner, right? Or the price of a pair of shoes, or the price of a refrigerator, okay? What is that? We know $20, $100, you know, $1,000. What would it be like and say no to something in your own life right now in the midst of this coronavirus and say, I'm gonna use that money to meet the need of someone else. And, and let me, if you need help, ask us, but I don't think that you do. All of us have people, your neighbors, the people that you work for, even where I work at Browncroft, but I mean, I know people in our immediate circle, you know, uh, spouses and friends who's, who right on our staff or in our, who's lost their jobs because of the coronavirus. They're uncertain about what's next. I promise you, you know somebody or someone who has a, a kid, a college kid who's been stranded, whatever the case may be, right? How could you use your wealth to meet a concrete need instead of satisfying a want for yourself? Think about it and, and do it. Uh, this morning. That's what it means to serve God faithfully with your wealth today. Second thing, invest in the work of advancing the gospel. Now you may say, well, gee, Rob, are you saying give your money to the church? Well, sure, okay? I don't know. Some of you do. 
But some of you, I know, because I know this, you know, don't, don't, don't faithfully give to the church. Listen, now there's a great time to start. And let me say this. You'll hear more about this, I'm sure, from all pastors as days go on. But, you know, our church, probably 40% of what we get comes in, our, in, the, in the offering plate, right? Well, guess what? We're not passing the offering plate the last two Sundays and maybe for many more Sundays to come. So, yes, we need you to do that. You can, you can do that electronically, as you already know from earlier in the service. But let me say this also. There are many people in this community, but even in our church, that are serving the kingdom of God, you know, with college students, uh, crew, with InterVarsity, if you know what these organizations are, men and women in this church who, who are serving uh, day in and day out, helping college kids come to know Christ and to grow in a discipleship relationship. There are at least three, maybe more, people who work, uh, men in our, in our, in our it happens to be men, I think, um, if there's, I don't know if there's a woman that's serving Fellowship of Christian Athletes, high school kids, coaches, right here in Penfield, Webster, Pittsford, et cetera, right? Listen, you can be a, a support, listen, send them a check for a hundred bucks, you know, make a difference in advancing the gospel, use your wealth. And lastly, just give more away, right, period. Give more, and whatever your wealth is, some of your, it's your wealth is your time. Some of it is your accumulated wealth, some of it's money, some of it's the resources that you have. Give more away, you say, how much? Until it requires you to depend on God greater, in a greater way than you are today, right? That's what this is an opportunity for you and me to do. And that's my prayer for you, and that's, that, that's what it means to live generously, to depend on God um, so much so that when you give to others, when you demonstrate giving, uh, you know, is more blessed to give than receive, you experience God in your life in a way, this is the kingdom of God. And this is the opportunity that we have uh, right here in the midst of the coronavirus. So I want to close with a prayer, and I've written a prayer. I'm going to pray it, but I'm going to encourage you to pray it maybe every day uh, this week as we close. So let us pray. Father, give me the courage to love you more than anything else and the faith to invest all you've given me to do your will in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.